Welcome to Mentoring Moments. Mentoring Moments is a sub-series of the E-Commerce Edge podcast. It is composed of clips taken from Jason's one-to-one and group mentorship sessions. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Paul Drexler from Shopee Freaks as our guest mentor of the day. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for having me. Hello, everybody. I'm glad to be here. Bye. It's super exciting to have you along for the ride. We've been, man, we've been connected online for a few years now. I've been following your work for a long time over at Shopee Freaks. And look, you're everywhere. You're on LinkedIn. You, you do a lot of stuff on Reddit. You're hard to escape. If you, if you work in the e-commerce world, you're a hard man to escape. Why don't, you, why don't you tell us who you are and what you do and give us the elevator pitch? Yeah, done. Yeah, I, I try to be 100% in, in a few places instead of trying to spread myself too thin. And I found that with e-commerce, Reddit and LinkedIn are my two best networks to be able to connect with people that actually read my newsletter. Everything else, it's just you're grinding away to reach nobody on, on some of the other platforms. But yeah, as, as Jason mentioned, I run an e-commerce newsletter called Shopa Freaks, and I started in January 2021, so just past the three-year mark and just past the 8,000 subscriber mark too. I was very excited. It doesn't matter. It was just a point of pride to break the 8,000 right on right before New Year's. So I start the new year with 8,000 subscribers, but it's a really niche newsletter. If you're listening to this podcast, it's probably the niche for you because it definitely caters to e-commerce professionals. If you're outside of our industry, the information will probably mean little, very little to you. But a few years ago, I just found that the bigger publications like The Hustle and TLDR and, and Morning Brew, great publications, I'll read them, but they were glossing over or not even covering the things that are important to me. I could only read so much about Elon Musk and, and Twitter every single day in, in tech news. And I, I wanted to know about the Amazon and Facebook or Amazon and Pinterest partnership. And so that's the stuff that I try to dial into and just carve out my niches are the e-commerce specific news that no one else is covering. And man, you do a good job of it. And you do talk a lot about it on Reddit and on LinkedIn. And it sounds like you've been doing the digital nomad thing like myself and my wife for a while. Now you've been doing it a lot longer than me. You've just uh, just had a baby girl. She's, I guess she's not a baby anymore. But I saw the first uh, the first post I think I've seen where you talked about your wife, talked about your girl and said, look, this is who I do all this work for. And but you were a digital nomad, travel blogger. You've had a very eclectic life before you ever came, ever, before you ever came up with the whole Shop of Freaks concept. Concept, right like you you've been a global you've been a global traveler for a long time yeah i've definitely for the last couple of decades been a digital nomad back when it was interesting to talk about now it's like everybody's a digital nomad you're like oh yeah i work remotely it's oh yeah my cousin does too pretty much everybody i know does but going back 18 years ago you talk about how you run your business online and, and people say what do you mean you've never met your clients in person before i'm like no i've, I've never met 95 percent of them in person if i'm traveling through their city i'll go out of my way to meet but yeah it, at some point got into e-commerce never looked back working for clients started making everyone else so much money and i was like i've got to get some skin in the game launch my own brands and i i asked myself like who is my people if i'm going to serve an audience Whatever I'm doing, if I'm speaking to them, if I'm serving them with products or content, who are my people? And the answer was very obvious for me, it was travelers. And so 2015, I launched Travel is Life, and that's been my, uh, my, my business to see some upside in what I help clients do through e-commerce. Very exciting. And you put out your... 
2024 predictions edition of Shopee Freaks recently, and you brought in commentary from a whole lot of different people from a whole lot of different vantage points in the industry. You, I was lucky enough to get a mention in the in the 24 edition uh, of predictions for this year, and I was talking about B2B, but you got a lot of submissions. You had you you rounded up from across the internet. There was a lot of prediction posts on LinkedIn, on Reddit, on Twitter, et cetera, on Quora, et cetera. And you really seem to not only through your direct network, but also with your sort of sleuthing ability, you pulled in a lot of predictions from a lot of different angles from across the industry about what was going to happen in 2024. And I wanted to get you on to talk a little bit deeper about that, to discuss some of the predictions that you received and see where we might align on these or where we may have a slightly different take based on our vantage point on the industry. And yeah, so how did you come up with that? Have you done that every single year for Shopper Freaks? Or is this kind of the first year you've done that collective roundup? This is the second year. And the first year I did it, I, I did reach out to my network and get submissions, but the network was significantly smaller at the time. Uh, my newsletter has grown a lot in the past 12 months. And so this is the second, what I hope to be an annual tradition that I do. And I like rounding up. I like doing a, a mix of getting submissions from my readers, obviously, and then getting things from the internet. I think there was like 50 something this year, including a few late submissions. And it could have been about 200 or 300. But I think with this report and just with the newsletter in general, part of the value that I bring, maybe more than half the value is in the curation. But which ones are most important to, to read? My preference with predictions, I like predictions that you can look back in a year and see if you were wrong or right. I don't like the kind that's, I think it's going to be a big year for buy now, pay later. It's what does that mean? What does big mean? Put a metric to it. So I, some of the ones that I, I picked today that I want to discuss with you, and really I'm excited to hear your viewpoint on them. I wanted to go with ones that were a little bit more binary. We can look back and say, yeah, it's time that was bound true. or possibly even more contentious ones in some respects. Sir. Sure. Yeah. But I, I hope to continue this for years to come. I, I think it's a fun way to because predictions, trends, the two words are used interchangeably online. And I think when you focus on one, you focus on the other as well, too. So I think through our conversation, through the report, you start to see, hey, where should I start to focus on in 2024? Where should I allocate our resources? And I guess also it gives you, as you, as you rightly point out, a little bit more of a direction of enhanced curation, right? Because when you read these predictions or you read the trends or whatever it might be, you then start to see these are obviously things that are on people's minds already. So why wouldn't I want to tap into the zeitgeist of our industry and pick things that are already resonating and expound on those and dig deep and double click on those versus maybe some of the other options I might have in a given week? Because I know because I had a newsletter, very difficult, I have total respect for you. I know how bloody difficult it is to build up a, a newsletter following. You know, it's hard to build a podcast following too, but man, newsletters are difficult because there's just so much competition out there. And I 100% agree with you. I think that newsletters are probably even more about curation than content creation is important. But that curation piece is super important, especially when you're focusing on news, like kind of news of the week or news of the month. Anytime you're doing that, man, you, you've really got to be a good curator because there's a lot of there's a lot of industry news, especially post COVID. We're getting a flood of industry news every single week. And there's a lot of happenings going on in our industry globally. So Hats off to you for building Shopee Freaks to over 8,000 readers now. Massive feat. You should be super proud of yourself. And may maybe we should dig straight into some of those predictions that you pulled out of those 50. I think it was maybe even close to 55 predictions that was ultimately in that list of predictions. So I think you picked out about 10 or 12 that you thought, okay, these are ones we should probably dig into a little bit deeper. For sure. I, I picked one or two from 
one of yours and, and one from mine too. And I, I picked a couple intentionally just because given your background, I'm, I would like to learn something. Too. I want to hear what you have to say about this stuff too. Sure. Absolutely. Why don't you, why don't you dig in and you read out the quotes from your side and then we'll, and we'll chip in and we'll see if we can put our two cents worth in and hopefully add some value for the listenership. Great. Let's start with, with this one. This is a good one. This is from Alejandro. He's a business developer and partnership manager at PrestaShop, big supporter of, of Shopafreaks, wrote me the nicest LinkedIn message. This to me is, this is why I do it. Start of the new year, first day of the new year, he writes me a message on LinkedIn that says, hey, I just wanted to say how much your content was valuable to me this year and how much I learned from it. And it's like, that is more than making any money off of a business. It's just like getting those kind of messages. So thanks, Alejandro. I appreciate your support. I love your prediction. It is, quote, TikTok will incorporate payments which he says is going to be called TikTok Pay within their TikTok shop. And he goes on to say, the recent acquisition of GoTo in one of the fastest growing e-commerce markets of Indonesia might be an excellent place to start. And just to elaborate on that for one second, he's basically saying TikTok is going to make its version of Amazon Pay, Shop Pay, Google Pay, its own digital wallet that stores your payment information or multiple payment information, and then allows you to make purchases within the TikTok platform immediately. And then maybe down the road, like ShopPay and Amazon Pay did, allow you to make purchases using TikTok Pay on other platforms as well. What do you think, Jason? Look, I think that's a super interesting prediction. I don't know if it'll happen this year, but it certainly, it has to be, just has to be on their radar. Look, let's face it, TikTok is a Chinese app. It's a sister platform called Douyin. It comes from China. ByteDance is a Chinese company. The reality is that they have this model in China. My wife's Asian, and I know how WeChat gets used in China. The reality is that WeChat is the super app to beat all super apps. It's your everything in the palm of your hand app from payments to having the digital wallet, to holding your address details, to making micropayments, to using it as access control into shops, to literally just about everything you can think commercially can be done in China can be done via WeChat. And if we look at TikTok's efforts to grow into more of a commercialized platform where they can monetize that audience, where they can bring influencers onto the platform, where they can make sure it's lucrative for them to be on the platform for it's, uh, so that it makes sense for commercial entities and businesses to be on the platform and actually do transactions through the platform. They've really struggled. TikTok shop has not done well in the United States. They originally pulled out of the United States from anything to do with, with e-commerce. Now they're coming back into it. Now they're trying to automate the onboarding process for new merchants. They're trying to make it easier. X with Elon Musk is obviously making noises about becoming the everything app. He's very aware of WeChat. He's very aware of what it would take. He comes from that PayPal background. So we're seeing a lot of platforms wanting to become the everything app. And it is impossible to become an everything app without also having payments and a digital wallet solution. It is absolutely impossible. So I don't, I'm not 100% sure about the timing, but if the reality is if in the United States and the rhetoric about kicking TikTok out of the United States has really died down, we, we just haven't heard much about that anymore. I think it's going to be really difficult. It's part of the zeitgeist of American culture now. It is literally embedded into almost everything that happens in the United States today in terms of the culture forward movement. That's all happening on TikTok. The culture wars are happening on TikTok, etc. Great prediction. Not sure it would happen in 2024 because I think – they are still concerned about regula regulation. They're really concerned about that. And I think that it puts them higher. If they're all of a sudden starting to com compete 
directly and commercially with the likes of Meta, et cetera, and Meta itself doesn't even have a wallet yet, I think they could run further afoul of regulators. So I think they're going to slow their roll in the United States, but it's inevitable that if they are allowed to stay in the United States, they will eventually have a wallet. No question about it. Yeah, uh, they move so fast, and that's why if I look at these predictions as bets, if I had to put money on this, would I put money on the fact that it would happen in 2024? I might. Maybe not a large sum, but I would put some, and only because they have so many other pieces of the pie with money. They've got the – they already pay creators. They already have the affiliate program. They already have the shop. So they're regularly transacting huge amounts of money all the time between customers, viewers, and, and creators and whatnot, merchants. Why do these companies want these digital wallets? They, they want a piece of that transaction fee. They don't just want to outsource it to another company to take the entire merchant processing fee. They're like, hey, why don't we cut this in half and, and get a piece too? So just given how quick they are to ex implement things, I, I think it's a great prediction. I agree with you though. It's coming no matter what. I think we'll definitely see it. I put a lot of money on that, but in terms of this year, I hope he's right. I just have a lot of a lot of optimism about TikTok's platform. I think you probably just saw too, like in the last day or two, the news came out that they like quadrupled the the price of their merchant fee. I can't yeah. remember what it was. It was like yep. 2%. Now it's going to be 8%, which is still significantly less than other platforms. We knew it was coming because in terms of TikTok, they've been talking about how they're subsidizing e-commerce on their platform right now. So obviously the subsidization at some point is going to come to an end, but even coming to an end now, I just feel like it's the golden age of TikTok. When I got started with Google ads, I was 19 years old, started my first software company in college. I was like, okay, I got to sell this software. What tools are available to me? I went on Google ads. I didn't, or Google AdWords, I guess it was called back then. I didn't realize yeah, at the time right. that it was the second year it ever existed and that it was the golden age of Google ads. I was buying clicks for pennies that today would cost several dollars to sell this software. And I, I think back and I'm like, man, if I wasn't so young and just naive and realizing the opportunity that I was sitting in right now, I would have tried to scale it a lot more than I did. And so I, I compare that to TikTok shop today. I think TikTok shop is the, it's the golden opportunity of being on that platform. In four or five years, it's going to be saturated and it's going to be a lot more difficult to sell. And who knows what will even be the future of TikTok in four or five years. But right now, I think if companies are going to allocate budget towards a new channel and they have any type of product that fits well within within social commerce, I think TikTok is the move this year. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Look, I don't want to linger on it too long, but I think the especially with the ads program and the ads platform in particular, there when we think about Amazon, Amazon came out of nowhere Sorry, Jason, with their with their completely. ads platform. And, and look, I think I think Amazon has come out of nowhere and now the third largest ad network in the United States after Google and, and Meta. So look, TikTok, one to watch, no question about it. So speaking of Amazon, that's a good segue. Next prediction, number two. This is from Daniel, the CTO and co-founder of Geek Seller. He says, there will be no other big marketplace in the US that gets close to challenging the dominance of Walmart, Amazon, or eBay. And then he expands a little bit and he says, running a market prediction. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. But just, just to back his statement up a little bit, he says, running a marketplace is hard. We, many have tried and failed. Players like Walmart, Amazon, and eBay have not only years of experience, they've had many opportunities to try things, fail, reinvent, learn from their mistakes, but also substantial financial resources, infrastructure, and an amazing understanding of the US audience, both sellers and buyers. Players will be coming and attempting to compete with them, but they will fail due to regulatory challenges, lack of experience, or trying to jump onto short-lived trends. And then he adds one more thing. He says, 
At GeekSeller, we do not plan on adding any new marketplaces to our software. We are focusing on all of our resources on improving current tools by prioritizing Walmart, Amazon, and eBay. You mind, you mind if I tell you my thoughts on that first? <laughs> Please, you go. I've, I've yeah. got my own and you jump in. Yeah, because I'm with you. I, I think that's – I agree and I disagree. I, I agree with him, and I think that no platform will ever get as big in terms of market share as those three. But I don't agree with him in the sense that these marketplaces will continue said dominance that they currently have. If we're just obviously the e-commerce pie is going to grow. So if we just look at the dollar amounts, GMB, that's going to continue to grow over the years. But if you look at it in terms of, of market share, I see all three of those companies losing market share over the years. And I don't think it's going to be one player. I think it's going to be death by a thousand cuts. And I think that expression is really fitting because that came, that expression actually originated in, in China thousands of years ago. And flash forward to 2024, the death by a thousand cuts. Many of those cuts are coming from Chinese marketplaces like Shane, Timu, Alibaba, JD, ByteDance included. And then within the US, you've got a thousand more cuts from smaller marketplaces, Poshmark, Bonanza, Target. Then you've got companies who are doing their own re-commerce efforts, where normally most of re-commerce historically has happened on these larger marketplaces. Now, DTC companies are, or brands are taking control of their own re-commerce with products like, like Recurate, Trove, Turnico, things like that right there. Last but not least, second to last but not least, I wanted to mention Shopify, who are inevitably building a marketplace through their shop app or through their shop.app website, and Google, who late to the game with e-commerce, but now they're catching up quickly, who are empowering an army of independent brands to create their own pseudo marketplace right now. And so, I don't know, that's my long way of saying in terms of uh, dominance, I don't think we'll necessarily see another Amazon of Amazon's dominance because I don't think we'll ever, I don't think Amazon will ever see that dominance again. I think it's going to start to spread out. Um, last thing I wanted to mention is just years ago, about two decades ago, Jeff Bezos said, at some point in the future, there's going to be four or five Amazon size businesses and, and customers are going to choose their loyalty to them. And I think we're starting to see that take shape slowly. And in another decade or two, we'll see another Amazon come into, come into play here. Another Walmart, another Amazon could be target, could be a company we've never heard of before, could be a Chinese marketplace, but it's definitely, I think going to kill them by a thousand cuts. You literally took the words out of my mouth. I was going to use the exact term, death by a thousand cuts. That's literally exactly what I was going to say. And <laughs> if I can awesome. only go by what I've seen in Australia, having been in the ANZ market for so many years, working in this space, Australia is one of the most over-marketplaced countries in the world. There's 15 major marketplaces. Amazon, it took them a long time to break into that market. They were very late to the market. Now they've got multiple millions of products in the market. They've got two of the largest distribution centers in the entire Southern Hemisphere. They're based in Australia, based in Sydney and Melbourne now. They're starting to distribute their products from Australia into New Zealand now. They don't have, a, have an Amazon New Zealand yet, but that's inevitably coming. And they had a very difficult time in Australia because of all those micro and vertical specific marketplaces and and to, to your point, what we're seeing is we're seeing the largest retail brands in region create endless aisle opportunities by implementing their own marketplaces on their own website. So do, effectively doing range extensions, range, enhance, uh, range enhancements, et cetera. And in many cases, you can't even tell that they're running a marketplace because they have so blended the marketplace experience with their traditional retail e-commerce experience that you sometimes it's very difficult to tell. Is this going to be fulfilled by the brand or is this going to be fulfilled effectively in a dropship fashion 
by a multi-vendor merchant on that marketplace sitting underneath that major retailer. Meyer has famously done it in Australia. They're one of the they're one of the largest marketplaces in Australia, but you and if you were just a traditional consumer, you wouldn't necessarily know that they were running a marketplace model for a significant portion of their inventory when you went to their website. Now, they're being they're starting to be a little bit more clear on the messaging with little flags on products and things like that to say who the retailer actually is who's going to be fulfilling the products. But it's still traditional consumers don't really understand that term marketplace is not used by anybody who doesn't work in our industry. That's what we use to, to understand that multi-vendor marketplace model. That's what we use. But the traditional consumer, they don't necessarily care who's ultimately going to fulfill that product so long as it's at the right price. It's going to come to them in the time that's been guaranteed to them or within a range of time that's reasonable and that they are going to get serviced if they have an issue. They're going to get serviced by someone that they can have a single throat to choke, right? So I 100% agree with you. I think that many more brands and, and oddly, Australia has been far ahead of the curve versus the United States and even the UK in terms of major retailers extending in, in their range through multi-vendor marketplaces. And I think that's going to become an absolute staple of a future retail plays because they have to monetize all that traffic that they're paying for. Even if the customer doesn't want to buy something directly off them, they want to at least be able to monetize it in some way by selling them something. So I 100% agree with you. On that note too, I, I think I can't speak for Amazon or Walmart, but it, it feels fairly obvious that they see the handwriting on the wall as well. And that's why in the past few years, they've just gotten so deep into growing their fulfillment and becoming a bit of an operating system for other retailers. And let's say Daniel's wrong, <laughs> and, and there are four, five, six, ten big players, and it morphs into Australia. We're probably going to be using Amazon or Walmart fulfillment anyway, all those partners, because fulfillment's a different issue altogether. I think he's speaking more in terms of retail, but at the end of the day, we all might be using the same fulfillment partners because that's a lot more costly and difficult to grow. Well, e-commerce is logistics at the end of the day. It's logistics with a slick buying front end on the front of it. So couldn't agree with you more. Speaking of these American marketplaces, and we spoke before on, on these Chinese marketplaces, this is my prediction. And I might be completely off base. So I'm, I'm curious what you have to say about this. But my prediction this year is that the de minimis rule gets revised. Basically, just if you're not familiar with the rule, that's what allows imports of less than $800 per person per day to enter the US without paying import tax. And so rule has been around for a long time. I think it was in 2016, it got bumped up from $200 to $800. But effectively, what this rule is allowing is millions of packages a day, consumer packages a day coming in from Shane and Timu, and customers not paying import taxes on it. So now customers are in comparison to Amazon and, and Walmart, any other retailer, there's sales tax, there's profit margin, there's, those companies probably imported these products in bulk and paid import taxes on it. But now consumers are buying things without paying sales tax with subsidized shipping and, and getting it relatively quick or in, in a sufficient amount of time into the US for what they need. And I just, I don't see that lasting. And so my prediction was, given the impact that Chinese marketplaces are, are having these death by a thousand cuts that we're seeing. Um, I don't imagine it's going to be long before that rule gets revised in some capacity. Do you have any thoughts on that? I would 100% agree with you if China did not have the United States by the balls. And what I mean by that is when you own 
a trillion and a half or something like that worth of U.S. treasuries, you have a loaded gun and you have it pointed right at the American government's head, right? And if they want to be able to continue to sell bonds in the open market, the United States government is running bigger deficits than ever before in the history of the United States. The total debt is ratcheting up to the tune of, I think it's about a trillion dollars a year at the moment. They've added $8 trillion, I think, in new debt over the last four years. It's just phenomenal. It's just, it is phenomenal. And when you think about who one of the primary global buyers of U.S. debt is, and that is China, they have a loaded gun. And if they were to dump those treasuries back onto the open market, it would crucify the U.S. dollar and cause it to fall through the floor tomorrow and probably cease to become the world's reserve currency overnight. China buying U.S. bonds is primarily one of the reasons why the U.S. has been able to retain its reserve currency status despite all the saber rattling to the contrary. So I think what we went through in New Zealand and Australia where they effectively eliminated the de minimis rule because we had the same thing. We had the same thing. and It was a slightly higher in Australia and slightly lower in New Zealand. It was always around the $400 mark in New Zealand, about the $800 mark in Australia. And what they did is they effectively – in theory, there's a de minimis rule. I think it's down to about 200 bucks now in, in New Zealand or something like that. But in practice, there is no de minimis rule because what they have done is they have what they have done is they have decided to simply set a total amount of sales volume in dollar amounts coming into the country by a foreign seller and then at that point it is their responsibility not the customer it is their responsibility uh -huh. to both charge and repatriate local GST goods and services tax at 15% in New Zealand it is up to the seller to levy that tax on behalf of the foreign country where the item is going to and then repatriate that yearly as part of their tax obligations back to that destination country. And, and I've even seen that in countries that I have bought off of before. So when I was still in New Zealand, I was buying off of a, a website called iHerb, I-H-E-R-B. It's a supplements website. And all of a sudden, when the New Zealand government changed that law, whenever I was going to check out, they would put the New Zealand GT, they would add that to my total and it would get charged to me because my destination address was a New Zealand address. They would levy the tax just as if I was buying within New Zealand. And then what they would do is at the end of the year in their tax filings, they would repatriate in bulk all of that tax that they collected to the New Zealand government. So that's the way the entire world is going. And then New Zealand followed suit within 12 months. They did the exact same thing. So they're going after the Amazons. They're going after the iHerbs. If you're a tiny business and you're selling less than probably $100,000 into a destination country. They don't really want to deal with you because that's rats in my stuff. It's really difficult to collect those taxes and go after those guys. Maybe they don't collect those taxes like they should and then remit them to New Zealand. It's too difficult to do that international tax grab if you're not big enough. And so they really are going after the biggies like the Amazons of the world, like the iHerbs of the world. But I think this is the direction that international tax law is going to go where they're effectively going to say, no, we're not going to collect this tax off of our consumers when it arrives because that's a pain in the ass. You're going to levy it at checkout. Just You're going to use Avalara anyway, which is what most of these merchants do, and you're going to plug in our tax rate into Avalara. You'll know what it is. It will automatically get levied at checkout, and you will just automatically repatriate, repatriate it to us at the end of the year. So I think de minimis is going to become all but irrelevant moving forward because the originating country is simply going to have to collect tax on behalf of the destination country. And do you think that's a positive thing? Like in the example you gave of Australia, what was the outcome? What did it even the playing field a little bit for Australian retailers to 
Absolutely. And they were crying okay. for it for years. The reality is that Australian New Zealand merchants have been crying out for that for years because they were saying, hey, look, all these people are importing all these goods that we actually sell locally. We sell it on the domestic market, but the, they have an automatic in – the, in, in the case of New Zealand, they have an automatic 15% price benefit just because they're not paying GST. And in Australia, they have an automatic 10% price benefit because they're not paying local GST. So it becomes – all of a sudden, now the local uh, companies – who are paying GST, they now not only have – so they're effectively losing twice the tax because to sure. compete with the foreign company, they got to remove the – they got to lower their prices by 15 percent. Plus, they have to pay that 15 percent to the New Zealand government. So the reality is that it was almost like a double whammy. So it absolutely has a level leveling of the playing field effect. Where it doesn't have as much of an impact is where stuff is so egregiously expensive domestically versus even paying that additional fee from offshore. Or you're talking about products or ranges that you simply cannot get in, in, in country at any price. Then it, it's less about price and it's more about range and availability, in which case people are happy to pay that extra fee coming in from overseas. Because the reality is if they had to fly overseas and get that, and even if they got it duty-free or whatever it might be, it's pretty expensive to fly overseas and bring stuff back in. So – it's still a benefit for them to be able to get those things in country. This is why I'm glad I'm talking to you today because I was not thinking along those lines. I didn't know the example that you had lived through in Australia. I wasn't thinking along, the, along those lines. I knew it had to change. I didn't, wasn't thinking about it changing in that way. But now it's making sense thinking about – so earlier this year, Brazil, they had like a $50 cap. They got rid of it or they said they were going to get rid of it. And it, everybody has to pay import taxes no matter what the amount, less than 50 included. Then there was such public backlash that they backpedaled that. And they said, okay, we'll keep the $50 de minimis, but now they're working with Shane and these big real shows directly to implement the taxes on the platform. I don't know if they're going to do like you had described where it's once you hit a, once you hit a, a range in your tax nexus, then everything on top of that, or if it's just going to be on every purchase. But nonetheless, I think it's a, a smarter, better system to do. And to your point, it, it keeps the spirit of the rule for the small businesses that are importing a part or two for their company. You know what I mean? It's It wasn't designed to be, and, and how could they have predicted this was coming when it was designed? It wasn't designed to be this. Yes, it, and it wasn't designed to effectively subsidize Chinese manufacturers selling into our countries. That was the, that was never the, that was never the goal. And so now what they're doing is they're trying to create a somewhat more a somewhat more level playing field. At the end of the day, still with labor rates and everything and the the natural resources and everything of China, they still have a natural advantage versus the regulation that happens in our domestic countries and everything else and the minimum wages and everything else. They still have massive advantage anyway. However, it's definitely a much more level playing field than just open slather with a de minimis rule that covers just about everything coming out of China. Great. Thank you. That's really valuable information. I'm going <laughs> to now I'm going to change my thoughts about it this year too based on that comment. I know, love it. Let's move on to another prediction. I've got one on AI. I've got one on Bitcoin, B2B, or guest checkouts. What do you want to do next? Hey, team. I have a big favor to ask you. Please pause this episode and send the link of this episode to someone you know that you think would enjoy this content. Really appreciate you spreading the word. This is how we grow. We're not a Joe Rogan. We don't have big, massive advertising budgets, but we absolutely want to grow. We want to get the learnings from all of these episodes out to as wide of an audience as possible, and we need your help to do it. Thank you, and now back to your listening. Wow. Okay, let's do Bitcoin because, look, I'm a person that was somewhat, I wouldn't say massively invested, but I had a fairly decent invest, uh, investment in not Bitcoin specifically, but a couple of cryptocurrencies, Soul and a couple of others. And it was, and it, unfortunately, it was an FTX. And when FTX 
went tits up, then I, I lost all my holdings in FTX, and it looks like we may get something back eventually, but it could be another decade before it happens. But look, I, I was always a fan of cryptocurrencies that had massive utility to them. I believe Sol is going to be able to handle microtransactions and everything all over the internet. As somebody who's a digital nomad, nomad who travels all over the world and has to use WISE and other international remittance platforms, the fact that we've got all these different currencies and they're expensive to convert and it takes forever, and then you got to move them from one bank to a to a remittance service and then from the remittance service back to another bank, domestic bank account. Like if you're dealing with multiple currencies on a regular basis in your business, you understand just how painful the international banking system is at its core. It's slow. Mm -hmm. It is expensive. It is archaic. You've got to try to use IBANs and SWIFT, and it's just – it's a nightmare. It is an absolute nightmare. So from a, a cryptocurrency perspective, I see the utility in cryptocurrencies just from a remittance and transmission of funds perspective. The fact that it's instant, all, virtually instantaneous, wallet to wallet, like peer-to-peer -peer payments are seamless and easy and, and bypass the traditional banking system. There are just so many benefits to the blockchain, full stop, even outside of cryptocurrencies. I, I think they will become the norm. Unfortunately, I think that sovereign countries with sovereign currencies and, and their own fiat currencies, they're never ever going to let major cryptocurrencies to usurp their right of issuing fiat by their central banks. And so therefore, that's why they're pushing so hard for CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. They're pushing super hard for that. It's going to all of a sudden remove sovereignty. I hope those initiatives fail everywhere in the world. I hope citizens rise up and fight against that because it removes basically any sovereignty you ever had over your own money. It becomes programmable money, programmable by the state. They can instantly apply interest rates. They can automatically apply penalties if you don't spend the money. They can expire the money after a certain period of time. There's so many negatives for the citizenry of central bank digital currencies. I really hope we don't, as a global society, go down this path. But I think that there are massive benefits to cryptocurrencies. But I think that based on what I'm seeing in the market, that the implosion of FTX and all the grift that was happening in mm -hmm. NFTs, blockchain, crypto, I think that set back the adoption of cryptocurrencies by about a decade. Now, that my bet changes slightly the moment that the US government and the Securities and Exchange Commission allow crypto to be traded as an ETF. Now, th that's being talked about already right now for Bitcoin, etc. Almost all bets are off. If, if your average retail investor can invest in a legal way into cryptocurrencies via their standard ETFs that they would through their online brokerage of choice, that all of a sudden creates a vector for demand that we have never seen before because it's always been a little bit difficult, a little bit painful to buy and sell cryptocurrencies. Now, if we can trade cryptocurrencies as if they were just another security, that mm -hmm. is a game changer. So I, I, I think that the adoption of crypto has been set back by about a decade, but it depends on the regulatory environment that emerges over the next 12 to 18 months. That, I'm hedging my bets on that one. On that note, here, here was Trey Cobb, investor at Upper 90s Prediction. He said, Bitcoin approaches new all-time highs. Given everything you just said, I think ETF being a, a, a big reason, uh, a big proponent of why it could reach an all-time high, do you see it? Bitcoin specifically, because really the market still follows Bitcoin to a degree. There's some breakout winners here and there, but as a whole, the market follows Bitcoin. So do you see Bitcoin reaching an all-time high in, in 2024? Oh man, that's a tough one. I don't think it'll happen in 2024. Uh, again, there's massive regulatory hurdles and it, sound, it, it looked like if we were watching some of what the SEC was saying, they made it sound like uh, an ETF was potentially right around the corner. 
It's recently hit some new hurdles. There's some big question marks around when or if the SEC will, will authorize this and what that might look like and what shape that may take. And even if it happened tomorrow, I think there's still a lot of reticence by retail investors to jump in whole hog after what they saw when when we went from 65,000 or whatever it was down to 20,000 or whatever it was with Bitcoin to, from the high to the low. I think that put the fear of God in a lot of retail investors. So I think even once the ETF comes out, I don't think it's going to be boots and all by every retail investor overnight. So I would say my call is no, it will not hit new all-time highs in 2024. Okay, good, because I'm going to challenge you on this. I'll take the opposing view. I think it is. Great. All right. Right now, Great. it's what, hovering between 44 and 46. All-time yep. high was like 68, 65 or 68, yeah. Yeah, 68. And so here's – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you three pointers, three reasons why I think it's going to happen in 2024. One, I'll, I'll gloss over this because you just really made it – explained it well with the ETFs. If the ETFs AR, – they're all trying to push this. At some point, they're going to win. And so let's assume that an ETF is, is coming. If it comes in 2024, that's going to be one big factor to, to push up. I, I don't think retail investors are really going to move the needle. I think what's going to tip the needle is going to be the institutional investors. Everyone has seen mm -hmm. what happened with MicroStrategy recently. At the end of the day, someone on Robinhood buying $2,000 worth of Bitcoin isn't going to push the needle. It's going to be – right now, MicroStrategy owns 158,000 Bitcoin. About seven point. They're de facto. They're de facto ETF for Bitcoin, effectively. So you can that's buy MicroStrategy instead. No, that's a good point. Yeah, but then I was just looking. I was like, who's the biggest Bitcoin owners? Everyone knows the Winklevoss twins. They got seventy k Bitcoin. This is just what we know. Tim Draper, twenty nine thousand Bitcoin. Michael Saylor, the owner of MicroStrategy himself, is seventeen k Bitcoin. So I think if an ETF pops off, the retail investors have long been purchasing on the exchanges anyway. I think this is going to open the door for a lot more companies to start hedging inflation and hedging their bets, their other investments against Bitcoin. That's what's going to pop it off. Second point though, April 2024, they're expecting the having to have the Bitcoin the having. having. Yeah. yeah. So the block reward falls. That basically pushes up the value of, of Bitcoin. And and my last thing I wanted to point out about this is just I don't mean to be a doomsdayist, but we've seen the inflation rate over the past few years. And just I was trying to find out yesterday. I could not find this answer. How much of Bitcoin is owned by Americans and American institutions and, and the American government. I could the institution stuff was easier because they have to disclose this stuff. The US government I found out owns a a crate like two hundred thousand bitcoins. But I was like, but how much do American consumers own? And and my thought process was what given the weakening dollar compared to inflation, at some point Bitcoin has to go up in value just because it's going to be more expensive to to buy it. And so all those things together I think are going to push Bitcoin past. But we'll find out at the end of the year if I'm right or wrong or if you're right or wrong. Love it. I love the over-under. Love it. Love it. We'll see at the end of the year. Let's do yours. B2B. Okay. Love it. Is going, B2B is going to steal the e-commerce growth limelight in 24. You wrote, while DTC has been the star of e-commerce brand success over the last decade or so, with the biggest players landing million and in some cases billions of VC funding, the luster has well and truly worn off. The poster child for this fall from grace might just be Allbirds. As a result of cheap funding drying up, DTC and its consumer-facing counterpart, B2C, have faded as the golden goose of e-commerce. I like that. Given the, the relative nascency of B2B commerce in its trajectory, I think it will steal much of the e-commerce thunder in 2024. This is your area to shine. So you want to expand on that? 
I'd love to. Look, it's interesting because when I first started my consultancy, I was more of a broad-based consultant, DC, DTC, and B2B. But I continue to niche down over the following couple of years, following into now where I'm almost exclusively niche down on B2B e-commerce with a little bit of DTC. If somebody's doing B2B and they want to establish a DTC channel, I can help them. If they do DTC today and they want to establish a B2B channel, I can help them. But I think Probably to back up my thinking on this subject, let's look to the probably the the most well-known and biggest D2C e-commerce platform in the world being Shopify. Yes, there's more WooCommerce stores, but in terms of a pure e-commerce platform, Shopify is the most deployed e-commerce platform in the world and multiple millions worth of sites on the platform. And even they themselves, they have released very recently, they have released B2B on Shopify for a start off. And I heard anecdotally through the industry that Shopify has spent somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 plus million dollars on building out the B2B functionality on the platform. And they are continuing to invest massively in the platform moving forward because they see the B2B writing on the wall. They realize they're trying to go up market. When we look at, when we look at all their hexagen work, so their, all their headless work, when we look at Shopify components, when we look at some of the other work that they're doing, pushing up the price of Shopify Plus, including B2B on Shopify within Shopify Plus to add more value to the Plus. They're really making very clear and concerted efforts to move up the enterprise stack and become more of an enterprise player because that's they know that's where the big dollars are outside of payments because something like 72% of their revenue today comes from payments. And they want to de-risk their business by moving more up and getting more money from the subscriptions they sell Shopify for. And the only way they can do that is to charge more because they've moved up the enterprise stack and become more critical as part of an enterprise component of enterprise commerce. And so they realize what's one of the best ways to do that. It's B2B because in B2B, almost all of those businesses would be considered enterprises versus their average D2C merchant, right? When we're talking about annual revs, right? And so I, I think they've made it very clear, not only with their investment, not only with their go-to-market strategy, not only with their functionality, not only with their roadmap of, of looking forward of what they're saying they're going to bring to the B2B space. Uh, when, when the biggest e-commerce platform vendor in the world says B2B is the future, you got to listen. And I got my finger on the pulse. I work exclusively in this space. I work with a lot of agencies to specialize in B2B. I work with a lot of other consultants to specialize in B2B. And we have witnessed an absolute explosion in demand for our services, especially since COVID hit, where a lot of these B2B brands, they were a decade behind, decade plus behind their B2C or D2C counterparts. And they realized, oh my God, with COVID, my field sales team can't go see my customers. So it's very difficult to re retain and grow those relationships without a digital route to market. And a lot of these brands, they're realizing another pandemic's probably coming at some point or some sort of international disruption or war like we're seeing in Ukraine, in the Middle East. There's stuff that's going to be coming down the pipe that means that we can no longer rely on solely our relationships and the existing relationships we have with our customers to continue to drive revenue. We, at least from a replenishment reordering perspective, have to offer e-commerce. A lot of these brands have offered maybe EDI for years for their largest customers who said, we will only transact with you digitally through EDI, basically ERP to ERP. But now all the other medium and smaller buyers of these from these brands they want to do things through self-service e-commerce. And yeah, I, I just think that there is so much momentum and all the forecasts from DC360 and all the other major research companies out there specializing in B2B, looking at the growth in transactions, even just in the United States alone, they're forecasting 
B2B e-commerce will grow at roughly six to seven times the rate of B2C e-commerce over the next decade. So when you look at CAGR, compound annual growth rate, it's forecast to blow away. B2B is forecast to absolutely wipe the floor with B2C. Yeah, look, all the data from my perspective is pointing in that direction. Whether it actually pans out to continue to grow at the rates it is now remains to be seen. But man, there are some investments being made in this space. Do you think that the tech because I mean, we we move quick in the tech industry, and sometimes the tech is there long before the in, in, internal desire to make it happen is. Has that been pushback that you've received? I guess for you, most people reaching out to you, it's because they already have the desire, and now they're looking for the solution. But I, I wonder for the rest of the market, is it just okay? It's there, but I don't really necessarily. We just got over the D two C mountain, and and, and yeah. then everything changed. We just got over it, and then everything changed again. Do we really want to on onboard our B2B process into technology. Is that a pushback you get? It is, but I think that the we're starting to see second and third generation CEOs, founders, people taking over the leadership of a business from family members who ran it. I, I was working very recently with a third generation family member of a family business. It's an it's Indian-owned family business. They work in the textiles industry. The grandfather founded the company. The, the son took over from the grandfather running the business, but it was still an, a completely analog business. And then the grandson took over from the, the son, and now he's the first one in three generations. He's taken over the business. He's now the CEO. He's the first one in three generations that has implemented e-commerce the very first time in the business because he grew up with e-commerce. It's as natural mm -hmm. as breathing to him. He's a digital native. And so for him not to offer e-commerce would be completely strange. And his buyers, his B2B customers, in many cases, are second and third generation B2B buyers. They've taken over their parents' and grandparents' business, and so they expect to be able to transact digitally with the sellers because they grew up as digital natives. And so slowly, as people are either literally dying and leaving businesses or they're retiring and passing on their businesses to their progeny, we're starting to see that groundswell, that ground up, de ground up demand for e-commerce increase at a great rate of knots. And it's just the attrition thing. I, I think once you get to a place where only digital natives are running these B2B businesses, it will automatically just happen as a function of this is how we do business today. That makes sense. The ones that get left behind are either just going to be merged or acquired at, at some point or <laughs> go out of business. Or go out of business. You're right. I see the same thing happening down here in Ecuador, just with tourism. It used to be you go into the jungle because we spend a good part of our year in the Amazon jungle here in Tena. And it used to be if you want to rent a hotel, you show up, you show up with a hi, do you have any space for that? The idea of going on the internet, the idea of being on booking platforms was foreign. But now the younger generation has taken over their parents, their grandparents' businesses down here too. So I, I see it on a completely different field altogether. I see the same thing happening all over the world. That's, in essence, it's also e-commerce, right? They're doing digital commerce with selling these rooms, selling their bookings on the internet. So it's definitely, it's a younger generation's game now. And sure, there are still some elderly people running these businesses, especially in legacy verticals, which a lot of times these B2B ver verticals are massively legacy, where they just had no even concept of thinking, well, I have a monopoly in my space. I have the relationships with all the buyers. We go out and get beers together on a Friday night. Why would I need e-commerce for these customers that have always bought through me the traditional way? And some cases, they're still sending me faxes for my orders. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it, 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 it boggles my mind that so many of these businesses still accept orders via freaking email, fax, and I'm pretty sure carrier pigeon. So yeah, definitely a big change coming <laughs> to the industry. But I think 2024 is the year 
that this really starts to, to hit the mainstream narrative to where these businesses realize we just can't sit on our laurels any longer. Looking at the time, do you want to wrap up or do you want to do one more? Let's do one more. I got time for one more. Let's do one more and I'll let you lead out with the answer and then we'll close on that one. Sounds good. I've got one about guest checkout and one about AI. You know what? Let's, let's do the guest checkout. The AI conversation has been done to death. Everyone's talking about AI. Let's do guest checkout. 100% agree. 100% agree. Okay. Soups Ranjan, CEO of Sardine. He says, you know what? I like this prediction because this I pulled from his LinkedIn. And the comments on this one were very divisive. And that means it's a good prediction. He said, retailers begin to move away from guest checkouts. He goes on to say, into a wallet offering and require email or phone verification to create an account. E-commerce retailers then are a store of value like any fintech and have similar fraud and ATO issues. To fight curbside fraud, i.e. buy now, pick up later of really high value goods, retailers begin requiring you to KYC, know your customer at checkout, and then also show a matching ID at pickup. I like his prediction because... It's something we can actually measure. And again, that's my favorite kind of predictions. We can look back and see. Right now, we can see stats on how many checkouts are done as a guest checkout and how many create accounts. And I've been in the business a while, and I just remember the debate so many times of, do we require accounts at checkout? It's always been like that. Or just let guests check out. There's always been, do we add that friction or, or not? But the conversation was much different a decade ago. Now, the conversation is much more led into not friction of the consumer, but friction of the retailer. Ecom fraud has absolutely blown up. I was looking at some stats. 2020 ecom fraud was 17.5 billion. 2023 it was 48 billion. And so it's not just about making life easier for the customer anymore. It's also about minimizing costs for the retailer. And I think we're seeing that in terms of the payment that the payment methods are willing to accept, the returns process. We've seen returns go from free returns every direction, million ways to companies scaling back their free return promises this year. And so and charging I, some I at least with, a de minimis fee, <laughs> at least for returns. <laughs> so I, I agree with his prediction. I, I think that they are going to move away from guest checkouts. I think that the problem, the number one payment method that is stolen is debit cards and credit cards. That's what's used. So I think that to move away from guest checkout would make sense. My caveat to agreeing with him is that I think Yes, we'll move away from guest checkout, but I think they'll start to be options. For example, you don't have to create an account and go through that KYC process if you're going to pay with one or two or certain digital wallets who already offer some of those verifications that the retailer is looking for. Bold Commerce, they just launched something recently. I believe it's Bold. I don't, I don't want to get this wrong, but they were bold, talking about- Bold Checkout. Bold Checkout bold with checkout. all their subscription stuff built in. Yep. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Bold, bold check. They were like, you know, now we're going to start to show options. Instead of flooding people with payment option overload, we're going to just display the payment options that fit that particular consumer based on their purchase history. And so if they're an Apple mm -hmm. Pay person and they're on mobile, let's show Apple Pay on mobile. So I think as we start to to customize and, and personalize checkout, I think that'll play a role in whether or not we allow guest checkouts. I think they'll start to weigh the risk of the particular payment method. Anyway, that's my thoughts. So I agree with him. I think overall guest checkouts go down. I agree. And what I think is really interesting is that there's really no such thing as a guest checkout. To, to the merchant, they're gathering exactly the same information as they would in a fully-fledged non-guest checkout account-created 
verified, authenticated checkout. They're doing the exact same thing. They're just not making re-login available to the customer. So that's what most customers don't understand is that there's no such thing. You still need the same level of information. You need their billing address. You need their shipping address. You need their payment details. You need their cell phone number. You need their, you need everything, right? So you're collecting the same amount of information. You're not just making, the only difference between the guest checkout and the regular authenticated checkout is you're not making the information they just put in reusable by the customer. That's it. And so you're still getting the same protections because you're still gathering the same information you, when you gather their credit card or debit card. You're still matching ABNs. You're still doing all the normal things that you're doing, plus any other anti-fraud technology is going to run across both guest and authenticated customers alike. I don't think merchants will be offering like a dedicated wallet of any kind anytime soon outside of like ShopPay and the default wallets that come with their platforms. But one thing I agree with him about that he didn't specifically mention, but he alluded to, is that I think there's going to be a lot less guest checkout in physical stores, especially where the merchant is omnichannel. Because, and what they're going to do is they're going to so heavily incentivize going into their loyalty program when you go up to the counter that it's going to become a literal no-brainer. Because remember, they want to be able to join your online and offline history, and the only way that they can really do that is to know who you are. And that means making their loyalty or their membership program, either loyalty and or membership programs, so flippin' valuable that you always want to use that when you go into a physical store or online so that now in their CDP platform, they can join this profile information together and incent the behavior that's the most valuable to the brand. Because when you look into CDP, CDPs and the information they gather around, say, for example, AOV by channel or cost to serve by channel. For example, they have all this data. And so therefore, if you go to a specific, so let's say you shop in three of their stores and you shop online, but in one of the physical stores, you spend 50% more on average with that store, plus the cost to serve is 50% less in that store. Now we're going to incentivize that person to continue to shop in that store with targeted marketing and targeted campaigns that push them back to that store over and over again. Then we're also going to try to figure out why do they spend so much in that store? Is it because we have an outstanding salesperson in that store that just knows how to cross-sell and upsell like a fiend? Cool. We now are going to systematize that learning and that capability, and we're going to make that part of our training program for the rest of our chain. So I agree with him. I think that we will try to intentionally move away from any kind of unauthenticated checkout across any channel as much as we possibly can. And, and this ties into mm – -hmm the growth of marketplaces and the pushback by merchants saying, you're going to give me the information on these customers because I need to hold this information on these customers to be able to serve them. Even if it's through your channel on an ongoing basis, I need to be able to serve them at the highest level. So I, I, I think that he's spot on. I think that he's overlooking the priority of getting physical customers into some sort of program where it's massively incentivized to give their data up. It makes sense. So it's not just about the fraud. The fraud is one leg of the table, but the other leg of the table, another one is just the data that companies are trying to get on everybody now. That's the biggest incentive to get rid of to rid of checkout or guest checkout just because they want you to have the account. They want you to have the, the loyalty. An account means you're stickier, you're coming back. Yeah, you make a lot of sense. Love it. I, I love that prediction. And I thought it was such an interesting take to call it guest checkout because i don't know too many brands nowadays at least well in the b2b world they're all authenticated they have to be right because they get mm -hmm. their trade pricing etc but even in the retail space it's been a long time since i have worked with a brand that allowed guest checkout even though i was working agency side and i was working with a lot of retail brands most retail brands already don't allow guest checkout or it's hidden or it's harder to find or it's harder to access 
than the traditional workflow of creating an account, creating your password, and then going ahead and checking out. Yeah, I, I think guest checkout is largely going away from retail. And I think that consumers, for all the bluster about worry about privacy, they care about more convenient. They care more about convenience and service than they do about privacy. Otherwise, we wouldn't carry around one of these with us in our pocket every single day. And it's mine's within a meter of me. 24 hours a day. Uh, I think if consumers were really that concerned, they wouldn't press yes on accepting cookies 99.9% .9 of the time, sure. and we wouldn't carry this around. So I, I love his take on it, but I think it goes even one step further than what he said. Yeah, good point. I, I don't know if you were in the US at this time, but Radio Shack back in the days, people used to complain and joke about how you'd walk in to buy a set of batteries. They'd be like, great, what's your address? And it's like, yeah. I mean, for, for as behind the times as Radio Shack was towards the end, they were ahead of the times in, in some ways in terms of really understanding and knowing their merchants down here in Ecuador, too. I was so surprised the first time I was like trying to buy something. What's your ID number? What it's like every purchase takes. I'm just trying to buy a cup of coffee. Do you really need all this information on me? Different reasons for doing it down here. But nonetheless, Correct. I see the world moving in that direction for sure. Yeah, it's the same here in Mexico. Oftentimes we have to give our RFC number, which is our tax ID number. We have to give our CURP. We have to give our residency ID. Like they, it's totally normal down here, even for person to person transactions to have to show your passport. It's such a different, it's just such a different view to privacy. It's more, no, fraud is rampant in some parts of, of the community. And therefore, to help ensure that the fraud isn't going to happen, we're going to collect all the information on you we possibly can so that if something does go wrong, we can actually pursue it. And, and find you and get the money from you. And, and again, I think we'll start to see some of this know your customer strategies employed by the, the wallets themselves. On the point of guest checkout going, being less frequent, just with shop pay becoming the, the de facto way to make payments on the Shopify platform, we're seeing platforms leaning towards having their own digital wallets. And so it'll be up to them at that point, to start to know the customer just as a fraud protection of being on Shopify in the first place. So I think all these things collectively, you're probably right, the days of, little checkbox that says check out as a guest are probably coming to an end. Couldn't agree more. Paul, yeah. this has been a fantastic session. I think we're going to have to, we may have to do a, a mid-year roundup and <laughs> see how these predictions are progressing and then do a, an end of year roundup at the end of 2024. Maybe we're going to have to make this at least an annual thing, if not a biannual thing. This was great. I learned a lot. I knew I was going to. That's why I was excited to do this with you. So thank you very much for recording this with me. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. And look, you've got your finger on the absolute pulse, putting out the Shopper Freaks newsletter and, and literally looking at hundreds of news articles a week. And I have such respect for you uh, again. And what I'm going to do is whenever I have a guest on like you, I have I always turn the microphone over to them. I let them ask me one question, any question they like. So apart from these predictions, Paul from Shopper Freaks, what is your question for me today? This is a tough one. I wish I was prepared for this. I have so many questions about e-commerce that I wanted. I always like to drop it in it. Spur of the moment questions. It could be okay. personal or professional. Okay. Do you have any sense of what's coming down? Since we're both in Latin America, what do you see on the radar? For, like here in Ecuador, we're still somewhat behind a lot of our neighboring countries. Like Colombia is more advanced. Brazil is moving to the top of the leaderboard in terms of e-commerce in general, whether in Latin America or not, just on, on a global scale. And so I'm here. I, I'd love to make sure that I am able to take advantage of opportunities in Latin America that, that come my way. What do you, where do you see the market changing? Maybe just in the next 12 months? Yeah. And look, this is so, such an interesting question. I love it. So Mexico in terms of e-commerce as a percentage of total retail is where New Zealand was pre-pandemic. So pre-pandemic, 
New Zealand was sitting at around 9% e-commerce penetration. Mexico is currently at around 9% penetration. It depends on the, the source of data, but it's anywhere from 9 to 11%. So we're still, we're still, it's almost insignificant in this country. And when we look at who the primary, the biggest online retailers in this country are, they're all marketplaces. We've got Amazon. Mm. We've got Mercado Libre. We've got Koppel. And then rounding out the, the biggest retailers in the country, it's grocery. All Every single major grocery chain in this country offers e-commerce and actually a very bloody good e-commerce experience with delivery to your door and delivery very cheaply. So through through what I'm sorry, I think through, through, uh, what, through what marketplace are they using? their own? No, so they they are doing their own e-commerce with their own. They have their own driving network. They have their own driver uh -huh. delivery network using personal gotcha. cars. Amazon will deliver. They also have their own delivery network and they have their own delivery system and platform that drivers can log into, almost like an Uber system, and they can go and they can pick up parcels. And I have had Amazon deliveries come to my door up till 9 p.m. at night. It is phenomenal, and they can find you. No matter where you are, they can find you. It's phenomenal. I think because the marketplaces got their hooks into these countries before the traditional retailers got into e-commerce, like they were just so far ahead of everyone else that it's going to be hard for D2C and B2C, the traditional retailers, to have a direct-to-consumer model outside of the major marketplaces. Very difficult. The one exception to that is B2B. So it's very difficult to set up an importation business in Mexico if you want to get an import permit. Very difficult. So you can't just flood the country with cheap Chinese imports. Very difficult to do because they want to protect their local economy and their local manufacturing base. So they're going really hard at that. So I, I think where the opportunity is because you don't have to necessarily go through the red tape and the politics is that B2B channel. I believe B2B e-commerce has a much better chance of growing fast here outside of the marketplaces than your traditional D2C and B2C business. And I expect that to play out over the next couple of years. I think Amazon and Mercado Libre are just going to absolutely dominate the growth in, in LATAM. Uh, for the force. And there's also other local regional marketplaces like Mercado Libre that I think are doing a pretty good job holding their own as well. They already have high trust and already have a lot of customer data through their local customer databases that they can tap into to make it easy to buy through them and access to local IDs that just the trust factor is such a big deal in LATAM. And I'm sure you're seeing that too, that if you have a, a very large local marketplace that kind of has access to just about everybody's ID in the country to make it easy to onboard them into the platform, that trust factor goes through the roof and it just makes it so easy for consumers to adopt their services. So that's what I expect to see. You reminded me of is I, looking back at just the evolution of the internet in Latin America, a lot of people's first interaction with the internet was through a mobile phone. They completely skipped the generation of let's use a desktop computer and go to a laptop computer. And so in these countries, the internet really started at an app-based level for them. And so I, I compare that to what you were talking about marketplaces too, in a sense, be, they're skipping over the small, tiny D2C websites that eventually get swallowed up by the larger marketplace. They're just coming in from day one, just like mobile did. Brilliant. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, in my own experience too, I'm seeing everything you described. So thank you. It's amazing. Paul, absolutely love your work. I'll put links to your LinkedIn profile and also to Shopper Freaks and everything in the show notes. I super appreciate your time today and I cannot wait to do this again, my friend. If you'd like to get mentored by Jason for free, 
head over to greenwoodconsulting.net, scroll to the bottom of the page, and click Get Mentored by Jason.